0: I kind of tricked you guys there. See, I kind of did like the five, four, three, two, one, 4, mm. just, just kind of Blue trying to be, I know, I figured I would try to do that. Um, so this is Talk Script, episode number 002, or do you not say all the trail the leading zeros? I guess you probably don't say them. Are <laughs> they significant? They could be one day. Amateurs. 002. 002. This is 002. Mm-hmm. Um, And that lovely voice you are hearing is Tori Rice, that's me, Um, and also Neil Roberts. I'm just happy to be here. And Nick Neesey's with us. Hello. And you guys um, got back, or not really just got done, but last week or something like that. it's the magic of podcasting. We can say that we just got back. That's a good point. No one really knows. Um, Through the magic of editing... Robot Nick. <laughs> Robot Nick. We're off to a good start here with Robot Nick. No one on the podcast um, will hear Robot no. Nick,
1: probably, but we
0: did. But we did. Slack That's good says I that. have
2: a slow connection. Oh, but I'm of recording quickly. It's
1: fine.
0: Of course. Yeah, exactly. All right. So anyway, you got back from Nebraska uh, JS conference or something. What is what is that exactly? I don't think I've heard of this before. Um, Nick, do you know anything about this <laughs> thing?
2: I know a little bit about it. Uh, so Nebraska JavaScript conference is... A conference that uh, I run with six other organizers here in Omaha, and this is our third year doing it, and it's our second year doing this podcast about it.
0: Thanks, Omaha. <laughs> so, <laughs> where? So, where did this take place this year? Um, a cornfield or a, a cattle ranch or? <laughs>
2: Uh, So it took place at the Scottish Rite Cathedral in downtown Omaha, uh, which is the home of the, uh, is it the Freemasons?
0: You better get this right or they're coming after you. (laughs) I know. Trust me, like Um, I don't, we've been through this before with with North Korea. Um, (laughs) Well, it's like the Scottish Rite, right? So what is that? Freemasons, or Knights Templar, or Illuminati, whatever—like they're one of those secret organizations that you think supposedly running the world, but it's really just a bunch of people getting together and planning out how to exterminate the population of the world. That's not the same thing, people. (laughs) So, yes, (laughs) okay. So every year, uh, so they don't (laughs) even—they're smarter than me. They're—they're not getting into this. so when uh, you do these, you have a theme based on where um, where, where it's taking place, right? So um, right. I think the first year was at a zoo, right?
2: Yes, it was at the Henry Dorley Zoo in Omaha, and which is the number one zoo in the world, according to Omaha's. And it's and great. It, <laughs> is, it is pretty great. Um, that one, uh, we, we had a uh, JavaScript in the wild theme. Um, so I dressed up as a like nineteen thirty British hunter. Think of uh, the hunter from the Jumanji movie, not the the rock Jumanji movie, but the Robin Williams <laughs> yeah. Jumanji movie. I can't believe that's
0: happening. Oh man, <laughs> I, <know>. I forgot. <laughs> I'm oh, um,
2: and we had it inside of the aquarium that's at the zoo, and that was a lot of fun. There was like a, inside like the a, aquarium. A, yeah, there was a fifty thousand gallon underwater tank, uh, as the backdrop.
0: It was a dunk tank uh, to the, to the, the shark company. tank. So you were outside of the aquarium.
2: Uh, they had a, a convention center attached to the aquarium with its own set of aquatic uh, wildlife in there. Um, but we also had special guest speakers of random zoo animals that they would bring in and let people touch and see. So Did they bring
0: cool. a penguin in? Because that would be adorable. <laughs> they
2: brought in like a, um, a snake and some kind of... Rope. That's not I fun. I don't remember... I know. Yes. It, it wasn't anything no. cool. Wait, they brought in uh, a like snake and then they cool. brought in a rodent? Was it just feeding <laughs> time?
0: <laughs> okay. Um.
2: Uh, last year, it was at the um, the Omaha Durham Museum, which is inside of a 1940s uh, train station, like a um, commuter train station that is now just a museum. And it's a very cool building. And so we had a whole trains theme. And uh, I, as the MC, uh, each year, dress up for these for these themes and i was a a train engineer and this year uh as you can probably guess we did not go with a free with a kilt theme right
0: you went with kilts instead (laughs) we
2: did not uh we kind of did stayed away from that that whole thing and we went instead with uh wizards theme and magic and so i dressed up as gandalf the gray and i had i had a um a corncob pipe like a really long one like in the movies and I had a beard and long hair and a robe and a satchel and uh, it was just a lot of fun <laughs> i had fun that i just had sounds that like lying fun. around too i didn't uh i didn't go buy that or anything i just normally dress as a wizard
0: <laughs> yes yes um, and there was an orb
2: yeah there was an orb <laughs>
0: <laughs> we had orb. a hate
2: we spent a lot of time on that actually <laughs> a lot more than we should have turned out um, great. putting together <laughs> it, it might reflect some pictures in in uh current events but uh <laughs> we assure you that that's just coincidence
0: now neil you went and i understand you did man on the street interviews
1: oh, there's, there's a table
0: <laughs> man at the table uh, interviews man at the table yeah um, so it's kind of what
1: we did last year where we were able to sit on a lot of the morning, uh, talks, uh, and then interview people, um, after we had seen them, this year, we also did a couple of ones where we hadn't seen their talk, which was fun too, because then it's a different kind of interview. Uh, it's more, uh, you know, it's less about exactly what they talked about and more just the general, uh, idea of what they're talking about. So I was able to just, uh, get in touch with the speakers in Slack and in the green room, uh, and we sat down and we had six interviews, unless one of them is terrible, in which case we had five or four. Five or four. Yeah. Just <laughs> there, edit, there were edit. no interviews. Uh, edit. Edit. In. <laughs> <laughs> there was at least one good one, because we got to talk uh, with Sarah, who's a developer at SitePen, uh, about keyboard accessibility. So that was fun.
2: As the MC, I didn't really get to see a whole lot of the talks, because I have to frantically sit in the back next to a fan to keep my... my uh, my wizard costume fresh because i'm sweating through it um and i I have to come up with uh jokes for for in between and and try to relate to to the talk a little bit which um is pretty hard sometimes so uh yeah just trying to keep the conference going i didn't get to actually see um more than a few minutes of each talk but the videos are coming out and we'll um we'll post a link to them when they they get out so if you want to watch them Uh, they'll all be great
0: they're going to be tremendous I've heard Um, since we can't actually watch them quite yet unless you're listening to this in the future which you actually will be technically no matter what um, I guess we'll just go to the interviews that are also I hear tremendous
1: Hi uh, here at Nebraska JS I'm talking with
3: I'm Divya Sassidharan. Do I have to explain what I mean?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if you want to say uh, uh, what you do uh, and what brought you here.
3: Yeah, um, so I'm a web developer and I currently work at the Night Lab, which is a journalism centric lab at Northwestern University. So I work on building tools and applications for journalists and newsrooms. Great. And I work on mentoring students. Oh, cool, that's fun. Yeah.
1: Um, and what did you talk about today?
3: Um, my talk was on virtual DOM uh, in its vanilla form and kind of how it works. Just peeling the layers behind it so people understand what it you know, eventually does.
1: Yeah, yeah. we've gotten into VDOM a lot at SitePen. And one of the things that, and you touched on it in your talk, that I thought was really neat is that I think for most people when they first heard about it, they thought that it was going to be completely impractical mm-hmm. to have this whole layer of abstraction mm-hmm. on laying out the DOM.
3: Yeah. Definitely. Um, I think even when I heard of it, heard about it, that was what I kind of assumed because uh, it just seemed extremely like perf- like intensive,
1: like wasteful, <laughs> in- wasteful, just yeah. to save
3: all of that um, in memory. And because you- it's not just one tree, it's two
1: yeah. or
3: two versions of your DOM, which seems ridiculous. But um, I had been doing a lot of research and reading about it just because I had that question and didn't realize that like game development engines actually use this. And. Game development engines are very well known for being high, highly performant because um, people are constantly thinking about how to render quickly, and That's, if they're using it, it has to be.
1: Yeah, so I wanted to bring up is I thought it was neat to use that example of here's this extremely performant system mm-hmm. in grap- in graphics rendering pipelines mm-hmm. uh, where people do the same thing, and you know I was uh, thinking as well that uh, in I think Chrome as well they do something very similar where they have mm-hmm. like a front end for. The objects that they're going to eventually draw out as mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. So it's it's neat that this is kind of a, a proven uh, approach to things.
3: Yeah, I think so because I think it's an idea that uh, like browsers are starting to use. Because I mean, rendering has always been an issue, um, it's and tough. so it's tough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so browsers kind of have to think a lot about how to optimize for it. Because developers do think about these, but browsers try to make it easier for a developers so they don't have to think a lot about it and they can focus purely on their application.
1: Yeah, what I love mm-hmm. about these kind of APIs is that if, if we figure out another optimization for how we uh, manipulate the DOM in order to leverage another improvement or work around some other aspect of the rendering pipeline, mm-hmm. someone can easily implement that in their... VDOM implementation.
3: hmm Yeah, definitely. And you kind of see that a lot because um, the, the example I talked about in my talk was Matt Esche's virtual DOM, mm-hmm. which is, um, I think… Elm uses it in their implementation of virtual DOM, and React uses something different. But there's so many different people who are coming out with their versions of virtual DOM, um, and some each getting better. Each for the getting most part, better, yeah. and they're like, "Oh, this is because virtual DOM is essentially just a rendering pipeline. So mm-hmm. um, what you can also add into a virtual DOM is the state management. So it's not just virtual DOM; it's something on top of it, yeah. um, which is like kind of what gives each of these their flavors of like different flavors of virtual yeah Dome. it's yeah. why so
1: many people are writing their own approach to it right yeah. yeah it's neat seeing people kind of play off these different ideas with each other
3: because
1: mm-hmm. uh, that's you know that's kind of what's happening is it's more remixing the same ideas
3: yep yeah um,
1: making little tweak here little tweak there and we're ending up with uh, crazy performance it's going to get even better than it is already
3: mm-hmm. yeah a lot of good ideas in that space
1: oh well, really sold when i was learning about v uh, what really sold me was keyed uh
3: oh yes keyed nodes
1: yep yep like that's, I think that's one of the neatest things for me uh, when that clicked in my mind. Where, uh, you know, I was thinking about how do I lay out a um, hundred, a 1, thousand rows that mm-hmm. are going to have uh, a ton of content in them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, what happens when I want to re-render those in reverse order, Right, yeah. or just with two, with one row removed, with with two rows removed? Uh, and when I learned about keys, I'm like, oh, this is. I think if I was trying to explain. To someone very quickly what I think uh, the one place where I could see VDOM making a huge improvement mm-hmm. is uh, if you're rendering a thousand nodes and you remove one yes. if they're all keyed none of that Dom needs to be changed mm-hmm. that one like basically it's smart enough to figure out I'm just gonna do a remove child yep uh, yeah. operation yeah it, and for someone to write the equivalent code To keep track of of all that stuff themselves, like, you know, not thinking about VDOM, but just someone that is like, I'm going to, I'm going to render a hundred rows with a ton of content. Mm -hmm. I'm going to figure out when one thing is removed. Mm -hmm. That's a, it's a mess to be able to do that. And I don't think that you really gain that much performance on it.
3: Yeah, not. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a, there's a really cool um, medium post. I don't know what his name is, but he goes by death mode or death mood. Um, and he wrote this article that's really well explained of how to write your own virtual DOM. Um, and it's that's a fine. it's a naive implementation. So it does a level by level tree comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does a good job if your nodes are in order, but the moment your nodes are not in order, it doesn't. So the keying aspect of it is kind of an added level, level of complexity that mm-hmm. if you were to write on your own, that would just add so much more additional code and complexity to yep. your... Yeah.
1: I love that. That That's a, such a neat aspect of um, VDOM stuff now too, is that it's a coding exercise. Yes. Um, I mean, when I got into programming, I know that was one of my favorite things is to be able to download this code example mm-hmm. and type it in and then play with it. Like it, yep. it's so neat that we have this technology that is really giving us tremendous um, benefits and, mm-hmm. and performance gains and like... what what a bunch of people have mentioned now uh, like brain space gains yep yeah Uh, and it's something that you can write on your own Mm -hmm. as a as a a, as a starting coding exercise
3: yeah um I think I mentioned a little bit about that too how um it's kind of nice that we don't have to make those decisions. Like if you use React or something that uses virtual DOM, yeah. you can kind of rely on that framework to do the, the work for you. Exactly. But there's a lot of value in kind of going into into the weeds to figure out like how those pieces are put together. Um, especially like, you know, React Fiber came out mm. recently and that's just like the reconcil- they redid the reconciliation engine. Oh, cool. Um, and it's much faster because it works in thread. So it kind mm. of like, uh, if you think about it like again, you don't necessarily if you use react have to really understand how it mm-hmm. works, but if you read about it, it's fascinating to see like the changes and optimizations they make and kind of try to f- use that as a problem solve like a personal problem solving yeah. challenge like how would I have approached that if I were to build it um, which is always nice because as developers you always want to feel like yeah. you're contributing code or you know doing
1: that also, kind of so, so much of this is open source. I mean, I don't know yeah. of any VNode implementation that isn't open source. Like, mm-hmm. if you're really worried about it not being right for your project, mm-hmm. you load it up. You see what your performance is. Yep. If, you know, one of the things we run into with the VNode implementation we're using is that it's terrible for reversing mm-hmm. node order. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is really hard to detect, right? Um, but it's something where you can you can write code that says, is everything just reversed?
3: Yep. To right, check, and yeah. and then I
1: can I can look at it in reverse order and then run my my DOM manipulation. So it's something where if it doesn't suit me, I can go in and I can fix it because it's yep. just it, it's it's data science, right? Like yeah. it's 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 something that you might learn in a computer science in college where you're saying how do I look at this data in just a different way mm-hmm. so that I can make sure that I accommodate the things that I'm working on too.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's thinking about problems in different ways because. Yeah. Um, I don't think, I mean, I think ultimately, especially if you're trying to write your own virtual DOM, it's like you kind of have to have all edge cases covered yep. and like how are people or how are developers going to update their DOM or how are they going to update their app? And you have to make those decisions, which can be a lot. So yeah, it's really fun. Yeah.
1: Well, thanks for talking to me. Though. Cool. That's, thank you. I like your DOM.
3: Yeah, me too. It's great. <laughs> it's,
1: it's great. It's the best. Yeah. <laughs> thanks cool. a lot.
3: Yeah. Thank you.
4: Hey, so uh, my name is Lon Ingram, and I work for RetailMeNot. Um, and there I focus on frameworks and tools, and um, in particular on performance. So I end up running a lot of, uh, I'm responsible for the website being fast, and so I end up running a lot of uh, performance experiments. And so that's what my talk was about, is um, uh, sort of high level, uh, the process that I approach uh, performance experimentation with, and how I try to do so in a way that is, um Rigorous and um, reproducible, so that other folks can repeat my results, and also rapid, so it doesn't take forever. Um,
1: yeah. So, what are the what are the big things you look for when you're analyzing page performance?
4: Um, the main thing that I look for, because of mobile users, is uh, opportunities to cut latency. So, um, when you're when you're thinking about uh, page load performance, it's typically dominated by the network. Um, particularly for sort of consumer websites like mine, where or ours, sorry, where um, <laughs> you know it's it's a lot of content and a little bit of JavaScript to make it work better. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in that case, typically you're not going to have like a bunch of JavaScript that's somehow slowing up the works. But what, what, what can end up happening is that you got like a big style file that's taking forever to download. Yep. Um, and um, in in the mobile world, the latency, how, in other words, how long it takes to um, ask the server for mm-hmm. a resource and for the server to start sending that resource back um, dominates way over the bandwidth. And so um, you really want to look for opportunities to avoid making requests. Um, to, if you can use HTTP2 to combine requests mm-hmm. into a single connection, that can really help as well.
1: Cool. So what were some of the big talking points from your the talk that you just did.
4: So the the talk sort of lays out um, at the beginning a motivation for why we should care about performance because um, performance is one of those things where people can get real sort of um, <laughs> you know like doing it for the fun of it and mm-hmm. for its own sake mm-hmm. which is fun but when you're working for a business you should be trying to deliver value um, and so. I talk about some like real world results that show that when pages load faster, users do more of the things that we want them to do, and they come back more often. Spend than money. We, they spend money. They look <laughs> at ads. They download our app. Um, all those sorts of things, um, and so um, so that sort of motivates the talk. And then I go through um, some sort of key ideas around um, performance and what it what it really means to be uh, like what does performance mean. Um, and I, I claim that it means basically managing the resources you consume to accomplish a task. Because a lot of times when you say the word performance, what pops in your head is speed right away. Yep. But there's other kinds of performance that can make a difference as well. Um, battery life being a really important one for mobile devices.
1: I know one of the, the mistakes I see a lot with people looking at performance is that they look at some total performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and one of the things that I find very interesting is being able to deliver as much as you can, as soon as possible. Yeah. Uh, and then <laughs> the fill in the rest as you're able to.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's, that's sort of the, that's the goal is to get, um, and I, w- I would modify that slightly by saying you don't deliver as much as you can, as soon as possible. You deliver exactly what you need <laughs> yeah. as soon as possible. Um, because another kind of performance to think about is, um, again, on mobile is, um, uh, how many bytes you're making the user download because mm-hmm. they pay for that. Yep. And so um, you have to kind of balance uh, these different kinds of performance. Like, um, you know, if, you, if you're if you doing uh, sort of the best practice of waiting to download um, the code for a modal until the user actually clicks the modal, mm-hmm. then they may have to wait a little while longer to render that modal uh, than if you were to push the modal content down yep. and have it available right away. But then you've made them pay for something <laughs> they may not use. Yeah, that's a tough
1: trade-off to make. It is, it is. <laughs>
4: So the rest of the talk is um, basically, uh, and it expands the science, the classical scientific method into the realm of performance optimization, mm-hmm. and lays down a framework for how you go about doing performance experiments, um, and at the end, I introduce this weird janky tool that I built <laughs> called um, Ground hard Day, um, which is a name I'm very proud of, uh, <laughs> and the way it works is that it allows you to capture a HAR, which is basically... Uh, a snapshot of a page load. It records all of the requests and the responses, and so what's interesting about this is that this allows me to replay that page load. So a browser connected Mm. to Groundhard A, when it requests, say I've captured the homepage of Mm RetailMeNot.com, when it goes to RetailMeNot.com, it doesn't actually connect to our servers in the real world um, out in the cloud, it connects to um, Node.js servers running inside of a VM that replay what I had captured. Um, and so this is kind of cool. It allows me to replay the exact same page load under different network conditions. So I can vary only the network conditions mm-hmm. and have a much more accurate picture of, of what's happening. But what's more exciting is that you can edit the HAR. The HAR is a JSON file. And so if you want to do, do things like figure out, huh, I wonder if using WebP images would be faster than PNGs, you can literally just replace all of the PNGs in the har with webp and change the URLs to fix it all up. And then replay it and measure it. And you don't have to like deploy all these images to S3 and like get a code review landed <laughs> and start an AB test. You can like try this right away and know or have a very good idea of whether the, the particular optimization is going to pay off or not and is worth further um,
1: investment. So what are the, some of the things that you've some of the success stories that you've seen from that tool?
4: So we used the tool actually to improve the render performance of our site. And we were able to use it to, um, to try out different ideas. And um, the end result was that we made our site uh, render twice as fast, which was pretty
1: cool. What were some of the things that you changed to make that happen?
4: So to make that happen, um, we um, one big change that we made was we, um, we switched to HTTP2, which mm, was a yeah. huge amount of work. Um, <laughs> You, know, you have to like, get all kinds of folks involved. You have to get third-party vendors like Akamai involved in that. Mm-hmm. And um, that was one place where the Groundhard Day tool really shined because with that, it was a simple case of doing a search and replace in the HAR for all occurrences of HTTP 1.1 and replacing them with HTTP 2.
1: So you kind of simulate HTTP 2 before you even move yeah. to it.
4: Yeah, the node server knows how to do H2. That's so really when nice. the browser connects to, in, to the servers running inside the VM, it just talks H2. And uh, and so we were able to see, oh yeah, this is going to be a win so uh,
1: this is your job <laughs> like what, uh, what point do you point job what point do you put yourself out of your job like what else uh, what other kind of tasks right do you uh, do when you're when you're working with this sort of uh, tool?
4: Well so for one thing um, you know, once you make things faster, then the product people will say, "Great! Now we can do put more." more, let's put more <laughs> stuff in we're there. Uh, and so you you can use it to um, make sure that ideas that they have about how to make things fa- uh, make things better aren't going to make things slower. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, like new new features. New features. And... You can
4: do testing with it. Um, a thing it's we have not done yet, but is super interesting, is um, so one thing that's tricky about about performance investigations is that you don't. Um, all these measurements are sort of uh, ephemeral for mm-hmm. a moment in time, right? Mm-hmm. So like if I measure how fast my website is today, I can write that number down. Mm-hmm. But in two months, we will have deployed a new version of the mm-hmm. website. And I can't actually compare the two, mm-hmm. right? I can just look at the numbers. Um, but w- when you capture the HAR, you've got the HAR and can replay it for you know, as long as you want. Mm-hmm. So one, one idea we have is to start capturing HARs when we do deployments. Um, and keeping, you know, sticking them in S3 somewhere so that we can, in um, down the road, if we decide we need to, actually go back and look at an earlier version of the site and figure out was this performance regression occurring then, or when was it introduced?
1: Cool. So when they when they kind of add a new uh, bit of UI to a page, do they send it over to you and have you look at?
4: Sometimes I, I well, I've been trying to. Uh, document my way out of having that job all the time. <laughs> um, but yeah, absolutely. We we uh, particularly when we add new, um, add things to the to the pages that where we where our users most care about performance. Um, we typically will deploy it as an A/B test and then do some performance testing against um, both versions to see what the difference is performance wise.
1: Cool. Yeah. Why do you think it is that a lot of sites don't? Value this kind of performance analysis I think it's because it's because
4: it's um, time consuming and difficult and um, it's not um, it's a thing that is noticed noticeable by its absence mm-hmm. as yeah. opposed to by its presence so you know when you make a cool new carousel for the website <laughs> you can like look at it and put it in a PowerPoint and you know when you make the website faster it's a little harder um, One technique you can use is uh, web page tests well which is a really awesome performance tool uh, at, at webpagetest.org um, it can actually capture uh, a video of a page load and so you can and and it can and it will also render comparison videos of multiple page loads side by side and so you can take the page load before your optimization and play it back next to the page load after your optimization and point to that on the screen and say, see, I made it faster. Is this,
1: is this something we should be like tweeting these videos to yeah. our favorite websites? Yeah,
4: absolutely. Uh, well, uh, you, don't, you don't have to do that because the <laughs> Google web, uh, web developer uh, relations people are
1: already doing that. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a fast web page bailer. If something isn't loading fast enough for me,
4: you and everybody else. I'm
1: gone. Yeah. <laughs>
4: One second, uh, according to this really great data that I talk about in my talk, um, if you load the page one second slower, your bounce rate, um, meaning the people who are like, never mind, I'm not going to wait, yeah. uh, goes up by 50%. So one second is, uh, you know, half as many, again, bouncers, which is not good.
1: Yeah, the thing is definitely, I I follow so many links on, like, this that originate from, like, Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that. And it's... it's I think it's interesting looking at at, um, the source of slow page load times, Mm -hmm. because for me, it depends on how long I'm willing to wait is dependent on where I'm coming from. If I'm following a link from Twitter and it loads slow, I'm bailing fast, because that content's probably not right. Someone probably isn't spending their day thinking, how do I make great Twitter content? If it's on Facebook, I might spend a little bit more time. Um, if it's uh, from uh, RSS, I'll probably spend quite a while mm-hmm. waiting for it. And if it's from email, maybe quite a while as well. Um, is, that, is that something that, that is, is talked about uh, in terms of source
4: uh, we don't really talk about it in terms of source, other than um, annoyance at how Twitter's uh, link redirection thingy is oh, so yeah. slow. <laughs> I tweeted a joke a long time ago about waiting for it to co, like instead of Godot. You're, yeah. You should edit this part out. <laughs> um, no. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> the, uh, uh, in the context of the work that I do, it, it typically com- comes out more in the form of sort of loyal users versus less loyal users. Mm. People who are frequent visitors to the site are going to be less likely to bounce because Mm. they Mm. have already shown that they like the site at its current level of performance. Sun cost, (laughs) (laughs) right? (laughs) But what's nice is that um, this is a case where a rising tide lifts all boats. Mm. But because when you make the site faster, then you reduce bouncers um, from the less loyal Mm. side of the or newer users, or you know, um, and you also make the the experience of the more uh, loyal users better, and so they'll be more likely to convert or poke around on the website a little bit longer.
1: Yeah. It just seemed, it's one of those things that seems so important to me, and I, I really struggled to understand why it's not something that is prioritized next to all sorts of other important things.
4: It's very hard to, um, well, for one thing, it's, it's diff- it can be difficult and time-consuming. Mm-hmm. Um, watch my talk to see how to make it less. <laughs> so. uh, and for another, it you know, when the marketing department says, hey, if we add this um, third party JavaScript, mm-hmm. they'll pay us $100,000 a quarter, uh. <laughs> uh, and I say, well, wait, but it makes the website load a quarter second slower, then you really have to do a good job of educating, which is something that I put a lot of effort into yep. in the company. Um, the company already cared about speed, but I, I've gone on a little bit of a PR blitz to mm-hmm. remind everyone why we care about speed. Um, and so you know making those sorts of trade-offs is tough. and, and in particular for content sites, um, you know news and things like that, yeah. there was the the incentives lined up such that um, that tracker script or that ad were always going to win, um, which is why Google came up with AMP uh, as a way of sort of hmm. forcing mm-hmm. the question.
1: yeah. No, I think that, that is definitely interesting to think about things in terms of incentives because I, I think a lot of us probably here today like to think about uh, egalitarian incentives. Right. Like that that goodness for goodness sake. Um, but it, it is interesting to think about how many industries there are that are um, adversely affecting incentives that are giving people incentives that are, that are bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I do think uh, there's probably a tendency for us to stay out of those industries, but it's something where I'd be curious to think about how many industries how many industries we can disrupt that we don't necessarily agree with
4: absolutely um, and you know uh, what was important about amp was that Google was in a unique position to sort of make mm-hmm. the, the these other industries to, to fix the incentives essentially yep. um, now there are other aspects of amp that are sort of troublesome yeah. that I won't go into, but um, one thing that I think is super interesting is um, uh, doing automatic improvements to performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you have these tools that generate sort of heuristics about like, hey, you should, you know, inline your CSS, which mm-hmm. is the thing that I talk about in the talk. Mm-hmm. But um, it, I think that my, it might be possible down the road for hard Day to actually be augmented to like sort of automatically apply different um, performance optimizations because some of them can be done sort of without any real you know it's something a computer could do for example um, doing the inlining of the CSS that's a thing that a computer can absolutely do automatically and spit it out and say like okay if you inline your CSS if you do this engineering work then you will make your page load excuse me a quarter second faster at the median
1: mm-hmm.
4: which you know uh, and then hopefully that will be a thing that people care about but um, yeah, so that, I think that there's there's a lot of potential there for, um, sort of uh, figuring out how to help um, engineers who are you know they're building product as fast as they can, and unfortunately, performance is not often thought of when you're thinking about how do I like make the site cooler or have these neat features. Um, you really have to have a rigorous approach to performance that starts from the ground up, where you set budgets for how long it's going to take to do various things like load the page and. Um, stick to those budgets, but it's tough to do.
1: Cool. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed. (laughs) Thanks for chatting with me. All right. Thanks a lot. Okay. You want to introduce yourself, your name and where you work, and uh, what your talk was about.
5: Uh, I'm Sarah. I work at SitePen uh, and on the Dojo2 framework, and I was talking about keyboard accessibility and sometimes screen readers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And you had a lot of cats in your yes. presentation?
5: Cats are necessary. We're talking yeah. about the internet. <laughs> you need
1: cats. So there's a cat in the keyboard. I think it was a, <laughs> an old IBM touchpad or something like that. That had a little, yeah. a little nubby in the middle. Yep. <laughs> so I thought it was uh, the, the neat kind of intro to your talk was the to-do MVC example <laughs> and how terrible that was.
5: It makes me a little ragey sometimes <laughs> that that's what we use to compare frameworks. It's so bad. Like every level of to do M V C is so inaccessible. It's like it's almost like they tried, or you'd be hard put to make it less accessible if you did try. So like,
1: how? Tell us about how it's accessible, inaccessible.
5: So color contrast is awful. Like even I have trouble like seeing it sometimes mm-hmm. if I'm. It's not. It's very nervous. gray. Yeah, if my like brightness is down or something and it's light out. Yeah, it's very hard to see. Um, there is no focus styles. Like They removed all focus styles from <laughs> MBC, so you can't tell where you are with the keyboard. Um, and you cannot edit or delete a two with the keyboard. Like It's actually impossible. There's no way to do it without a mouse.
1: The editing is a double click event, Yep. and the delete is a hover.
5: Yes. And it's, it's actually JavaScript hover, not even style hover.
1: It does so. seem like a bad idea to do things in a hover.
5: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, it's not. <laughs> not like inherently bad as long as you also do it another way but
1: yeah yeah it was neat talking specifically about keyboard stuff because that's something where i love keyboard shortcuts i think a lot of people yeah. love keyboard shortcuts and one of the things that made me realize is that i don't ever use keyboard shortcuts when on i'm on web. on the web yeah. and that yeah. seems kind of crazy um i like you saw i, I opened up audacity with my little yeah. quick switcher and typed it in and it opened up really fast i love uh, I love the shortcuts, and, and it seems odd that people have really done such a bad job with keyboard shortcuts.
5: Yeah, I mean, so a lot of the spec for keyboard interaction comes from desktop app usage. So like menu arrow stuff is based on how you would arrow through a menu on a desktop. So I mean, they should be there, they just aren't because web developers don't think about it.
1: Why do you, Why do you think that the the current spec is so un- unfriendly to developers?
5: I don't know. So. It did go through like a bunch of revisions, and the new 1.1 uh, spec is really nice, Like, or at least I think it's really nice. Yeah. <laughs> I read it every, every day. <laughs> As I go to bed, I just look at it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it seems like good falling asleep reading. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it is actually really nice. It's well organized. Um, but before that, it wasn't. It was just like this giant document of text that wasn't really easy to navigate through or understand what the sections were. Well, it seems so. like from what
1: you were saying that we kind of just have tab index off, right? (laughs) Tab index on. And then if you are getting, want to make your website unwieldy, then you have tab index with numbers. Don't do that. Don't do that. It it seems like there's not that much much there for most web developers out of the box.
5: I mean, there is also unfocusable. So Mm -hmm. there's absence of tab index. And then focusable, but out of focus order, negative one, and then in focus order. So there's the three. But I don't know. I think that's really all you need.
1: And, and help from <laughs> JavaScript developers, right? Yeah. <laughs> that too. So uh, what made you get into accessibility?
5: Uh, so I was living in Austin, um, and I was kind of aware of it in the way a lot of developers are aware of it. Like, it exists. put alt tags on images, and, yes. you know, it exists. And I, I was kind of aware that things should be focusable in a general sense, but I didn't really test it well. I just knew it was a thing. Um, and then there was this accessibility hackathon put on by nobility, it's spelled k n o w yeah, the pun, pun. yeah. yeah. <laughs> unsurprising it appealed to me., <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but they put on this hackathon that's actually been going on for a while. Um, and it's centered around uh, they connect developer teams with nonprofits and you make them a website, but they judge it based on how accessible it is. Cool. So I did that. They also provided a bunch of training and stuff. Um, so I did that. and then, um, kind of luckily after that we got this giant government contract. Um, so mandated accessibility yep. and there's like this whole legal thing where we'd be on the hook and could get sued if it wasn't. So. Yeah,
1: mandated accessibility does help a lot. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I actually
5: ended up reading through all of the laws like the yeah. um, the old, uh, what's it called? Man, as soon as I have to talk now I'm blinking. <laughs> I talk about this all the time. I had, to, I had to actually write our VPAT, which I don't know if you've ever written one, but it's mm. this document where you talk about how your website is accessible. Like you describe That's
1: all Yeah. things. Yeah, I like, yeah we only you know, had a talk on stories this morning, you know.
5: <laughs> yeah. It's very boring story <laughs> because it's a document for, like, submission. Yeah.
1: Really, like, like I want to talk about a couple of examples you did because I thought the one where you could accidentally tap into invisible content yeah. was really funny. And, like, the fact that it, it wasn't just that it was doing something off screen, right, because that would be bad. It actually opened it up.
5: Oh, it didn't. Which, I opened oh, you it up opened so you could up? see what was okay. going on. Otherwise, so it's even,
1: it's, it is really hidden yeah. off the screen. Because that, yeah. that, that's really crazy.
5: I mean, if it did open it up, then it'd kind of be okay. Maybe I didn't explain yeah. that well enough. <laughs> if I didn't open it up while I was doing then it the was example, just, then you wouldn't know. You're
1: just pressing tab yeah. eight times for no reason. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, that seems, that seems like a really... Uh, not great thing to do if you're thinking of accessibility at all.
5: Yeah, and it's so common, too. Yeah,
1: I mean, your advice of just going to a website and pressing tab over and over again, I think, is definitely a way that I would start approaching things.
5: Yeah.
1: Um, but it is, it is really the whole, the whole passive active thing uh, is where I thought you start straying into where toolkits really need to help. Yeah. Um, and I've worked with a number of different focus managers, and I don't think I've ever understood how they work. <laughs> and I think your talk, uh, Kind of went into a little bit of detail about that. Uh, Kind of, how would is there something out there uh, in any of the JavaScript tools that you've used that is any good?
5: Um. So I think focus. It's it's an odd thing. I think focus managers are essentially there to to deal with whatever framework you're doing Mm -hmm. because if you're working with. If you're not working with an app, if you're just working with a web page and the content is relatively static, like maybe you're showing and hiding things with CSS yep. but not removing them from the DOM, or you're doing it, um, uh, uh, well, yeah, or you're doing it yourself hmm. um, and you're not managing it, there's no state, there's nothing like that, then you don't really need a focus manager. You can just call focus on things because you know they'll be there. Yeah. Um, but you start needing a focus manager when when you have like a render cycle or something and you're not entirely sure when an element is actually present and visible, you can't call focus on something with display none, for example. If you mm. try, it just won't work. So you need to make sure things happen in the right order, and I think that's what focus managers are for. So it's hard to say like if I've worked with one that's good, because they're all there to deal with a specific challenge presented by a specific framework.
1: So. Is it something that you think you want to do as part of our Dojo 2 Definitely. efforts? Definitely. Yes.
5: Because we don't want anyone to touch the DOM, <laughs> otherwise, you can never call focus. So we need to.
1: Actually, I mean, I fixed a bug where um, someone was popping up a dialogue uh, and it was trying to remember where it was launched from huh. and restore state from it. Uh, yeah. And if you launched it programmatically, it would die in the craziest sort of way. Interesting. Um, and that's. Yeah. I was looking at that and I'm just like, it seems like something should be able to handle this. And that's where. Being able to launch something, remember what was focused when you launched it, uh, yeah. go through everything that's not in the thing that you're launching, mark them all as uh, you're saying tab index of minus one, or you're saying there's another
5: inert. Inert yeah. is, inert is one. so wonderful. I can't inert wait sounded until really it's good. Yeah.
1: Um, being able to say it, where it retains its tab index uh, mm-hmm. and it can just be added and removed. I mean, that, that seems like a huge win to me. Um, Although I think I was imagining being able to have like two levels of pop-ups and then you really <laughs> start getting into a lot of trouble
5: It should be okay, right though like if you have one if you're already handling pop-ups and you know what called it, then you should like secondary pop-ups should still you just have be the like same, you'd right? have
1: like layers of inert I guess yeah that you'd have to pop on and off so yeah. it's it's still kind of, you know it's still tracking a little bit of state, yeah. um, but it does seem like it's not as hard as I thought it was going to be um
5: yeah. normally it's just like telling people not to do the stupid things sir, that yeah. they're in um, well, the habit of doing.
1: Well, I think the focus um, outline yeah. is uh, so misunderstood. Um, I've, I've always seen it and it seems to, to happen in the most inopportune ways <laughs> uh, where, uh, you, you know, happening when you, when you click on something, uh, I, you understand why it's, why it's there, but you're not thinking in terms of keyboard navigation. It just looks yeah. really ugly. Uh, and people's first inclination is not to make it look pretty. People's first inclination is to get completely rid get rid of it. Yeah. So, um,
5: there is, um, so there is actually focus styles. I didn't really go into it when I was mm-hmm. talking, but there's actually another level where the focus ring in browsers nowadays, this wasn't always true, but recently um, it doesn't show up if you're just navigating with a mouse. Like mm-hmm. if you click on something now, it is focused. Like it is okay. element. it'll be focused, but it doesn't get the focus styles. Mm-hmm. Because there's, there's, a, there's actually a different um, state. Instead of like just colon focus in CSS styles, there's focus ring, but you can't style that with CSS reliably yeah. yet. like You can't actually target it, but it exists as separate from focus. And browsers apply that outline That's to focus ring, not just focus. So like really, you should be able to get away with leaving the default outline there, yeah. and it probably won't bother anybody who's not navigating with the keyboard. Um, unless you're moving focus yourself in which case it will show up.
1: But yeah, basically don't ever get rid of the focus ring. Yeah. Unless you're replacing it with some other styling. Yeah. I thought that was Yeah. I, I understand that tendency to just uh try to get rid of it. Yeah. Cuz like Definitely. I mean and that's uh it happens a lot in software of all sorts where the uglier you make something, the less likely it is to be left. Uh, I mean, some of the focus yeah. rings are really really ugly. Yep. Uh and it's sort of a bummer. You know, it's, it's hard to make things so that they're really easy to see for people that need it and not be super obstructive for people that don't.
5: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I don't yeah. have a really good answer for that <laughs> other than like style it intentionally per site, per app.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about how to style the grid to make it keyboard navigatable, and that yeah. seems like a lot of fun.
5: Yeah.
1: I seem like it should be a fun programming exercise for anyone to go through and figure out how to quickly navigate the thing that they've created. Yeah. Definitely. So I guess JavaScript developers out there should think about how they can have fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Make their lives that lives better. I mean, if if all the apps that you like to use have really simple, quick keyboard navigation, uh, I think what I liked was talking about how tab switches between top level stuff and arrows let you descend into items. Uh, yeah. That sounds really good to me. Uh, I feel like I am hitting tab more than I need to when I'm doing some of this navigation.
5: Yeah, definitely. I think that's definitely something to look out for. Because tab is like tab is like your basic, I just want to go through things I can interact with. And once you enter in something like dGrid, that's, that probably has a lot of focus yeah. stops. You don't want to <laughs> yeah. have to tap through all of that. <laughs> exactly. You just want to say, okay, this is a thing.
1: That's- <laughs> yeah, you want the screen reader to say, like, this is a table. And then you want to be like, okay, well, I care about that table, or I don't care about that table, yeah, um, exactly. instead of having to go through right. a ton of rows.
5: <laughs> imagine, like, imagine you're on a page, and you're somehow interacting, like you go to it multiple days, and you need to get to something mm-hmm. below the table, or somehow it reloads, or you do something, you interact with the page some way, and... I don't know, it reloads the page. Imagine trying to get past it multiple times. <laughs>
1: well, we're talking about doing a grid that can potentially have millions of rows, right? Yeah. Uh, that's got <laughs> to, that, I, yeah, I think that <laughs> illustrates why uh, top-level tab is is important. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I I thought it was super interesting. I I, I knew all of the stuff that you talked about, Classic. Um, and it, you but, site, but it was still interesting to, I think I got a different perspective about how I would want to implement it. Um, The the tab thing, I think, is especially what interested me a lot. Yeah.
5: Yeah.
1: yeah. It was really fun. Thanks. Awesome.
0: You're welcome. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. We're going to have another episode with the rest of our interviews coming soon. You can follow us on Twitter and various social networks, uh, Twitter at SitePen, S-I-T-E-P-E-N. On Facebook, we're SitePen. I know, weird, right? If you need help building a web application or modernizing some old bad code that no one knows what it does anymore, uh, or even just need some help finishing off uh, some new features that you're trying to get into your project, uh, SitePen can help. Check us out at SitePen.com.
2: I was rolling down the window. Cause I like to feel the wind blow. We got a good thing.
0: Gonna see where the day goes. Take it fast, take it real slow. We got a good thing.